your Bible to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 this evening. How are you guys doing? Now, how many of you, your kids are on spring break? All right. How many of you, you are on spring break? Uh, hey, the rest of you, your work doesn't celebrate spring break. Then I'll give that to you. So well, we're glad you're here tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and ask that you speak to us through your word. And God, we never want to have a a calloused or conditioned heart to your word. We never want to approach it like we've studied this section before, but it would be fresh upon our hearts. And as we look at the fear of God, especially in your church, may we really understand it and how important it is uh, in our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 4, and the ending note was the church was sharing everything in common, introduced to a man named Barnabas who sold his property and then gave everything to the church. And it's in that that we get into chapter 5, and we have the copycat gift. Ananias and Sapphira are following these that are selling their property and giving the profit to the work of God. So join me in verse 1. But a certain man named Annas with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Ananias means God is gracious. Isn't that a good name? That's a a great name. God is gracious. Sapphira means beautiful or wonderful. So you've got quite a couple here. God is gracious and beautiful and wonderful. They sold a possession. Verse 2, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Question, was the problem in keeping some of the proceeds for themselves or in the fact that they were deceptive about it? There was no problem in keeping back some of the profit to themselves. What it was is they were trying to be more spiritual than they really were. They wanted everyone in the church to think, oh, Ananias and Sapphira, they're such giving and wonderful people. It's the sin of hypocrisy. Now, before we get too hard on Ananias and Sapphira, how many times do we want other people to think that we're more spiritual than we really are? Maybe they say, have you read that book, Crazy Love, by Francis Chan? And you go, oh, oh, oh yeah, I read it, and it it was great. When reality, it's been sitting on the bookcase for five years and you have no intention of reading it, right? Um, Yeah, I haven't read that and I really don't want to read that because by that omission, maybe that would mean that I don't have crazy love for Jesus, right? So we don't want to just come out and say that I wasn't that interested and I didn't pick up that book. And there's so many ways that we may tend to fall fall into this. Well, how's your prayer life? Oh, it's great. It's great, brother. It's, it's great, sister. Thanks for asking. In fact, I was praying for you today. Wink, wink, right? And we know in the back of our minds, I had a super busy day. I woke up late. I, I didn't pray at all. And instead of having an honest answer of just, you know, I got to be real with you. I've really been struggling in, in my, my prayer life. And that's what is getting to the heart of this. George McDonald said this, half the misery in the world is caused by people trying to look rather than trying to be. Did you catch that? Focused on the look. I've got to look the part. I've got to have my act together. And unfortunately, in Christian circles, we can be guilty of this. 
We put on the spiritual mask. We don't want brothers and sisters in Christ to see that we're really struggling or, or to see, you know what? Hey, finances are, we're tight and we could only afford to give 50%. Would God have been pleased with that? Absolutely. The percentage is not what God was concerned about. 10%, 50%, 100% of the proceeds. It was the heart that was given. It was a cheerful gift unto the Lord. This really challenges us that we can't be copycat Christian. We can't just hear somebody else's calling and how God is moving them and then fake it till we make it and then try to receive all the glory unto ourselves. We want to follow what God's doing in our hearts and our lives and give those things that he's placed upon our hearts. Verse three, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Peter, obviously filled with the Holy Spirit, it was a God moment. Peter understands and realizes things aren't quite right here. They're not telling the truth. He calls Ananias by name. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? There's two influences here. There's Satan and the Holy Spirit. Satan's the father of lies, and he wants us to lie. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. Isn't that true? Find yourself sinning and you don't repent and you're going to start lying because lying fits every sin. So here they are lying and notice who they're lying to. They're lying to the Holy Spirit. This seems to be an oxymoron, doesn't it? How do you lie to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's God and the Holy Spirit knows everything, but Sometimes when we get caught up in the deceptiveness of our sin, we think that we can pull the wool over the eyes of the Holy Spirit. And maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't see that I'm faking it here. Maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't, doesn't see that I'm trying to appear more spiritual than I really am. But the Holy Spirit sees all of us. So spiritual deception comes into to play here. And verse four, while it, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Peter asked the question, wasn't it in your control? Didn't you have the freedom to do with it what you want? Sometimes when we're comparing ourselves to other Christians, we put on ourselves things that God hasn't placed upon us. Ever done that? well, so-and-so's giving this much money or so-and-so's praying this much or so-and-so's serving in the children's many this, this much. So if I'm gonna be in with those people, I've gotta do the same thing they're doing. And what did Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Walk with Jesus. Do the things that Jesus is placing upon your heart. Wasn't it in your control? And then he asked this question, why did you conceive this in your heart? This is the million dollar plus question, isn't it? Why do we come up with these things in our hearts? Where do we conceive these things? And the answer is Jeremiah 17 verse nine, that the heart's deceitful, it's wicked above all things. Who can know it? We left to ourselves apart from Christ and listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, we're gonna come up with a lot of wicked and evil things. A healthy understanding for us is to never put ourselves on a pedestal and go, well, how could they do that? But realize we're capable of every sin under the sun, amen? amen. 
and we're just one decision away. We're, we're one moment away. The end of verse four, he says, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. And verse three said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Here he's saying, you've lied to God. This is an important proof text that the Holy Spirit is God. If you've ever had anybody question that, this is an important one to underline and know in your Bible. This is a reminder that sin is against God. If I'm lying, I'm lying to God. I'm lying to the Holy Spirit. We go on into verse five. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. This is not an ordinary Wednesday night service. Homeboy dies right here. Ananias, so all of a sudden, doesn't have to worry about what people think about him anymore. And we'll talk about more of the fear that came over the church in verse 11. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I'm pretty sure they didn't cover this scenario in the usher's training, in the usher's policy or the usher's handbook or in pastoring school and seminary and all those kind of things. Hey, what do you do if God strikes a guy dead in one of your services? What if they're all kind of standing in the back, you know, going, hey, you go down there and get him. No, you, you go get him. Well, God might get me next. I'm not touching him, you know. Okay. All right, and then Peter's finally like, hey, come get him. They wrap him up, and they take him out to go and, and bury him. Verse 7, now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. So she's not aware that Ananias had died. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for, for so much. She said, yes, for so much. This was the moment of repentance, the opportunity to confess her sin, to forsake it. And God says there's mercy when we confess our sin. The very opposite of hiding our sin. It's that Holy Spirit moment. What are you going to do? Did you sell it for this much? Maybe she paused for 15 seconds, 30 seconds, decided, yep, I, I sold it for this much money. And she continues in the lie as well. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Man, these guys are out there digging in the Middle East to bury Ananias and they come back and they're like, whoa, I need some ice cold lemonade. And now they find here's Sapphira and they got to go back at it for three more hours. How is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen to that. We need to make alliances, pacts, commitments, covenants together with brothers and sisters in Christ to follow the Lord. Not pacts, commitments, alliances, covenants of unrighteousness. Now, if you're married, if I could please have your attention, or you're dating, or you're thinking about getting married there should be a commitment as a husband and wife that we're gonna to be together in righteousness. So if your spouse says, hey, I got an idea. Let's do this. Let's lie on our taxes this year. <laughs> you go, no, we made this agreement. We made this pact. We made this covenant that we're gonna honor God. Hey, I got an idea. Let's, let's go in and make ourselves out to be really spiritual and that we're giving this 
great grandiose gift when we know we've kept something back for ourselves. There should have been a voice from the Holy Spirit and also a voice from at least one spouse that says, hey, wait a second. Somebody in the home should have the courage to say, we need to turn this off. This is absolute garbage. No, no, that's not, that's not coming into our home. This is a pack. We made this decision together of the, the direction that we're going. But have you noticed that when we sin, we usually do it with somebody else? Because sin loves company, misery loves company, and along this pathway of sin, you kind of feel better about it if you can get somebody else to join you in it, especially if it's your spouse. All of a sudden, the conviction starts to, to go away. We need to have alliances of serving God together. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Dropping like flies. Tough day for the ushers. Verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. As we've been going through the book of Acts, we've seen a lot of firsts, haven't we? The coming upon of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of the gospel. 3,000 people get saved. Crippled man begging, getting healed. Opposition. Standing strong in the midst of opposition. Now, when we get to chapter 5, it's the first time that we've seen sin and compromise in the church. A lot of times when you hear people talk about church, they say, we got to get back to the book of Acts. And that's true. I think we do need to model our lives off the gospels and the book of Acts. And with saying that and understanding it, don't think that the church was perfect in the book of Acts, nor will it ever be perfect. They had real sin that needed to be dealt with as you go through the book of Acts, and it's right out of the gates. Right as the horses are starting to round the first corner, there's sin that takes place. And God dealt with the sin inside of the church. We're gonna see four points tonight, and this is our first one. It's the purification of the church. God will purify his church. Yesterday, I got a splinter in my hand, and me being the big baby that I am, today, it was brutal, you know? I'm like, what is this little thing in my hand and it sure hurts and I called my mom and told her about it and <laughs> I had to get that sucker out of my hand it's amazing that kind of damage and pain that can come from a little sliver and if you don't get it out it can start to get infected and all nasty and vibrant colors of green can start coming out of your hand and sometimes they gotta just chop your hand off and stuff like that and all from a little sliver so there's purification that has to, to happen. And God will expose things. God will, will deal with things because he loves his church. And Hebrews tells us that a father disciplines a child he loves and that God disciplines the children that he loves. And so when sin happens for the first time in the church, God deals with it severely to send a message to every believer, to every church, to take sin seriously. What if this is the first time that sin occurs in the church and God is kind of passive about it? He says, no, I'm going to make a statement that all generations are going to remember that when they read this section of scripture, it produces some fear inside of their hearts. 
In chapter four, there was great power and great grace. Now in verse 11, we have great fear. And when we talk about the fear of God, it's really important, isn't it? Fear is that reverential awe of God where we're in awe of his position, of his power, of his glory, his holiness. There should be something about his position that gets our attention that we're not just hanging out with one of the boys. That he has the power to give life and to take life. If he wants to bring correction, he can. I don't ever want to lose that healthy respect of God in my life to realize that he loves me enough to correct me. He loves me enough to expose me. He loves me enough to bring the consequences. There's that positional fear of God. But also, there's the relational fear of God, where we're in awe of his power, but we're also in awe of his love. He's our father. I don't want to do anything to to hurt my father's heart. He gave his son for me. There's a respect that goes to God where we say, I respect him and I don't want to bring any hurt to him. I don't want to put any distance between me and him. Maybe you've heard me tell this story before. If you have, bear with me. But eighth grade, I was feeling pretty good about myself. It's toward the end of the year, probably right around this time. My mom, she told me I needed to study my spelling words. I'm a terrible speller. If I didn't study for my spelling tests, I didn't do too well. So you need to go study your spelling words. Well, this young man, this eighth grader, didn't think that that was a good idea. And so I got up from the kitchen table and I threw my spelling book and I said, I'm not going to study my spelling words. And I walked downstairs like Napoleon, you know, like, hey, I just did a good job there. And then I heard some big steps coming behind me. And I turned around and my dad says, you're not going to talk to your mom like that. I thought, this is my moment. I've been doing some push-ups. I've been going to the gym. And I wheeled back and I punched him as hard as I could right in the stomach. And in my arrogance, I thought, man, this is going to have some impact. I'm taking a shot at the title. This is going to be the KO punch. Boom. And he didn't even move. And I'm like, (laughs) ah, you know. And then went from anger to absolute fear came over my whole entire body. (laughs) And I saw my dad have this look on his face like, I'm going to kill you, you know? (laughs) I thought, oh no, here here I'm going to get it. And the fear of his position and his power came, came over me. And then I'll never forget it. He got just a little tear in his eye and it wasn't from the pain of me hitting him. He said, son, you've never hit me. Why did you hit me? We need to sit down and talk. And he broke my heart. And I sat down on that couch, and as a 14-year-old young man, I was so convicted over the fact that I hit my dad. And that's the fear of God. That's where we understand in that moment, oh, he has the power over me. But also then the relationship aspect where we go, God, I hurt your heart. Numbers 32, 23 says, But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Church, tonight, we don't want to just rush through this section of Scripture. We don't want to simply laugh it away, that it was a tough night for the ushers. But church, RMC, Rocky Mountain Calvary, your sin will find you out. And the story here with Ananias and Sapphira 
is more about honesty than anything else. And if we confess and forsake our sin, then there's mercy. But if we hide and pretend and hide and pretend and put another spiritual mask on it and another spiritual mask on it, what a terrible way to live. And it sucks the life out of us. And we're constantly waiting for that moment that we're gonna be exposed. Tonight, what if you open up your heart, I open up my heart, we allow the Holy Spirit to do his work inside of us. We confess to God, we confess before others, and we forsake sin. Your sin will find you out. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and destruction. There's so many verses in the Bible about the fear of the Lord. God really wants us to get this. This is an important lesson for this early church in the book of Acts, and it's an important lesson for us. And I found myself asking this question, do I really understand what it means to fear the Lord? Do I really understand what it means to fear the Lord? To know that he's always with me, that my sin is, is before him. Great fear came upon the church. And I hope in our lives in a healthy way, in a life-giving way, in the way the Lord intended, both positionally and relationally, we adopt that fear of the Lord. So before we go on to this next few sections, I want you to just take inventory of your heart and your life tonight. And is there something that you need to get right? Maybe it's just simply this pressure where you feel like you've always got to have your act together and you can never expose your weaknesses before the Lord and before brothers and sisters in Christ. I think we're going to be a much healthier church if we can just get over that. If you understand, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, we're all sinners, and when we fail, and we will, that we're honest with God, we're honest with each other, and when we gather in small groups, and men's Bible study, women's Bible study, in this sanctuary, it's a place that we can be real and genuine and authentic with God and others. Whatever it is, allow that commitment to take place in your heart, saying, I'm gonna confess this and forsake it. I'm not gonna hide it. So we go on to verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. They're like, oh man, I'm not joining that church over there. They're having people die in their services. There's this fear that came over the community where people thought twice before they made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as their savior. And this is important. People should take a moment to consider as they give their life to Christ and understand that receiving Christ means that their life is, is going to, to change. So there's this fear. I, I'm not sure if I want to join them, but there was this respect for the church. In verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the church, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought their sick out in the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on them. Also great multitudes gathered from surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the next point, first we see the purification of the church, but then we see the addition of the church. Before God gives his power here, in chapter five, he first purified his church, and God will always do that. 
He'll purify the church and then he'll pour his power through the church. He'll purify the church and then pour his power through the church. Don't get discouraged when you see God purifying the church. And God begins to add to the church. The church is God's work. Christ promised that he will build the church. We're sitting here almost 2,000 years later, aren't we? And the church is flawed and the church is messed up and the church has tried to be more spiritual than it really is and do things wrong and mess up and compromise, but God has been faithful to continue to add to his church and bring people to salvation. How about these healings that were taking place? The shadow of Peter, some would try to just get in his shadow and they were healed. People are bringing people from other cities. The gospel's beginning to spread outside of, of Jerusalem. There was those who were tormented by demons and they were healed. This shows the heart of Jesus Christ to heal people and to set people free. We never want to minimize the power of God. If God wants to heal, we should pray for people's healing. We should also trust that if God doesn't want to heal in their particular situation, that he's working his will and his plan in their lives. The name of Jesus has the power to set people free that are demon-possessed. We see that continually through the Gospels. We see it continually through the book of Acts. It shows the heart of God to heal people and to set people free. Verse 17, then the high priest rose up and all those who were with them, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Do you guys remember what the Sadducees believe? They don't believe in the supernatural, right? The resurrection and everything else. So when they start hearing and seeing supernatural things happen, they get really angry. And they were filled with indignation and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in a common prison. Persecution, opposition. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. <laughs> I love this. I think this is an important lesson for us is that Jesus holds the keys to the prisons we find ourselves in. The Sadducees thought they were in control. The high priests thought that they were in control. They lock up the apostles. God just sends one angel and says, why don't you let my boys out? It's time for them to do some more preaching. So if God wants the prison that I'm in, that you're in, to be over, he can open the doors tonight. He can change the circumstance. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Did the Apostle Paul get this get-out-of-jail-free card as we're studying 2 Timothy on the weekends? No, he gets martyred in prison. So God doesn't always just open up the doors of the prison, but sometimes he does. So here's an application for us. Whatever circumstance that I'm in tonight, whether I like it or not, God is ultimately in control of that circumstance. And he could change it if he likes. And if he doesn't, then he's got a purpose in it. What's their instruction as they leave the prison. They're to go right back to where they got arrested and speak the words of life in the temple. This is the third thing for us. We see the purification of the church, the addition of the church, and now we see the mission of the church. Have you ever wondered, what's the church to be about? What's the church supposed to do? The church is supposed to speak words of life. That's what we're to do. Words of eternal life, words of abundant life, and we're to do it in the cross sections of people. The temples where everybody hung out. So we should go to the places where people are, build relationships, and speak of Jesus. 
speak the words of life. Well, it's kind of dangerous there. It's kind of dangerous there for these guys. It's important to use wisdom. It's important to really care about the people that you're talking to. It's wise to, to build relationships, but we have a mission, don't we? To speak the words of life, to share Jesus with people. You may be the only Bible that some people read. In your workplace, they're probably not gonna pick up a Bible, but they're gonna get to know you. In your neighborhood, you may be the only Bible that some, somebody reads. So speak the words of life in your campus, your college campus, your high school campus. Speak the words of life. In this next section, we're gonna see the mission of the church play out. Verse 21, and when they heard that they entered the temple early the morning and taught, but the high priests and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Notice in verse 21, it says, and when they heard that they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. It would have been easy for the apostles to be like, well, you know, we heard the angels speak to us, but that's where we got arrested. So maybe I'll sleep in a little bit first and get some espresso at the Jerusalem cafe and then a falafel and, you know, send out a few emails because this could be the end of my life. No spiritual procrastination. They went for early in the morning. If you hear God's voice, do it. If you read it in God's word, do it. The Lord uses people that hear and do his word. If God's putting on your heart, get involved, get involved. If he's putting on your heart to, to serve in an area of ministry, do it. If he's putting on your heart to go share with a neighbor, give a gift to a neighbor, help out a neighbor, go do it. These guys heard from the Lord and they went and they did it. Don't wait. Has God been putting it on your heart to read God's word more? Do it. Is he waking you up at two in the morning? Man, pray. He's stirring your heart to pray for somebody. Get on your knees and pray. We all need that exhortation. No spiritual procrastination. The news comes back to the high priest, the Sadducees. We put them in prison, and they're not there. In verse 22, but when the officer came and didn't find them in prison, they returned and reported, saying, where's Waldo? saying, indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Mind-blowing. We locked them up, we got guards, we went in to look for them, and they just absolutely vanished. Could you imagine the panic that would come upon the guards? Wouldn't want to be those guys. Verse 24, now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these words, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Pretty hard to deny the supernatural now. How did these guys get out of prison? Something supernatural has happened. They can't stop these guys. There's no human way to stop these apostles from sharing the love of Jesus Christ. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for, the for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. They wanted to beat up the apostles. They wanted to be violent towards the apostles, but they feared the people. The people are starting to have, give their favor to the apostles. 
And when they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, do we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and, to, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. What a wonderful compliment. You have brought your doctrine upon all of Jerusalem. Wouldn't that be a great comment of your life? You brought the doctrine of Jesus Christ everywhere you went. Everywhere you went, people heard about Jesus Christ and how he died for their sins and rose again. Notice what they say at the end of verse 28, intend to bring this man's blood on us. Remember when they were requesting the crucifixion of Jesus, what did they say? Let his blood be upon us and our children. Now they're denying it. Verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. This is another aspect of our mission. Our mission is to speak words of life, to show words of life in our actions and in our words. This was the marching orders that Jesus gave to us, the great commission, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all of Jesus' commands. And lo, I'm with you till the end of the age. As you go and do that command, as you fulfill the mission of the church, Jesus is with you. He's with you as you speak those words of life. Then when there's opposition to that mission, when people say, hey, you can't speak about Jesus Christ, what do we do? We obey God rather than man. I think you've probably noticed over the last 10 years especially, it's becoming more and more countercultural to follow Jesus Christ and share Jesus Christ in the public square. People are really trying to limit the discussion of Christ only to the walls of a church or the walls of your home, but if you talk about Jesus in your workplace at your break time, maybe you've heard recently of a cadet here in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy on his whiteboard that you have at your dorm, he wrote a Bible verse and it caused a big stink and the administration asked him to take it down. Now, that's his whiteboard where you get to express, you could put poetry on there, you could... I'm sure there's all kinds of things like, you know, I got drunk over the weekend or all these kind of things that take place on a college campus, but then you put a Bible verse on there and it gets people's attention. And people are saying you can't, can't do this. So then we're left with a question is, are you gonna obey God or men? If there's a God-ordained appointment at your workplace and you know that God is stirring and you're on your lunch hour, you're not taking time that you're getting paid for, and you share Jesus, and that person comes back and complains, and you may lose your job, you could rest in going, I obey the Lord. I was obedient to the Lord. This verse, maybe in times past, would seem really distant, that we wouldn't experience a, a time in our life where we would have to decide this. But I think more and more there's gonna be this question, who do you obey? Do you obey God and men? And when there's a crossroads between God's ways and man's ways, we have to choose God's ways. And the disciples had already determined this. They'd already made this decision in their heart and their mind. We're gonna follow God. We're gonna do what God asks us to do. This is civil disobedience and it needs to be done lovingly. It needs to be done respectfully. It needs to be done Definitely, according to chapter and verse of what scripture says, 
in, we can't put God's name on it if God isn't truly saying in his word to do this. We see this a few times in scripture. Remember the midwives in Egypt? They were instructed to kill all the baby boys and they didn't do it. They obeyed God rather than men. Rahab, she hid the spies, didn't she, at the beginning of the book of Joshua. She didn't turn them over. She obeyed God rather than men. The three amigos in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They honored God. They wouldn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. Also Daniel, he prayed when he was told he wasn't going to pray. That's part of our mission. We obey God, not men. And verse 30, then God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are as witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. A powerful proclamation of truth and grace. Peter doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't beat around the bush. He says, you guys murdered Christ. But he died for our sins. He rose again. When there's repentance, there's forgiveness of sin. Peter's saying, we bear witness of this. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill him. Now we read that and we can easily go on to verse 34, but these guys have got real death threats against their lives. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. This is kind of that discussion that you're having as parents not in front of the kids. We're just saying, Mom and I, we, we need to talk right now, so you need to go downstairs while we figure this out. That's what Gamaliel does. He goes, oh, let's put the apostles outside, and let's figure out what we're going to do with these guys. This name may ring a bell, because Gamaliel was also the teacher of the apostle Paul before he got saved. He was referred to as the beauty of the law, meaning that he really fulfilled the law. He had a lot of integrity in following the law, this man Gamaliel. His one complaint about his pupil, Paul, was he couldn't find enough reading material for Paul. Paul was a a bookworm. So here's Gamaliel's input. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourself what you intend to do regarding these men. So stop and think about it before you take action. For some time ago, Thudius rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this came Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census, and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it's of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. This is our last point tonight, and it's the strength of the church. Gamaliel has great wisdom. If this is from God, you can't stop it. If you begin to fight these men and it's from God, you're fighting against God, and that's a a losing battle. So if God is leading you and you're sharing in a God-honoring way filled with the love of God, and someone comes against you, ultimately they're coming against the Lord. That's a battle that they cannot win. The strength behind the church is God. 
If it's a movement of God, then it can't be conquered or opposed by men because God stands with us. But on the other hand, if we're doing this in our own strength and our flesh and it's our own good ideas, then it is gonna fail and it's gonna disperse. And this is a good attitude and approach to, to take towards others as well. There might be somebody that you're all concerned about and you're maybe thinking, I need to come against them. No, just, just wait and see. If it's of God, it's gonna be blessed and there's nothing you can do to stop it. If it's of men, then it's gonna disperse. Man's work has a way of working itself out quite, quite literally. We wanna be in that place where we're following the Lord, we're behind his strength, where his strength is behind us. In verse 40, and they agreed with him and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. They took to heart the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, didn't they? Or Jesus said, rejoice when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Even though they were beaten and told not to speak in the name of Jesus Christ, they rejoiced because great was their reward in heaven. Did they obey this command to never speak in the name of Jesus? And daily in the temple and in every house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Winston Churchill defined a fanatic as one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. The apostles wouldn't change their mind and they won't change the subject. These men are captivated by Jesus. Everywhere you took them, they were gonna talk about Jesus. It wasn't forced They weren't making it up. It wasn't pretend. They'd fallen in love with Christ. They'd been impacted with what Christ had done upon the cross and his resurrection. So if they're in the temple, they're talking about Jesus. If they're in every house, they're talking about Jesus. Everywhere they went, they didn't cease preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. So we've seen four primary things. First, the purification of the church, Ananias and Sapphira. The addition to the church. And then the mission for the church, to speak the words of life, to obey God, and then the strength behind the church, that God's for the church and man can't stop the church. I don't know about you, but as I was going through this chapter, my attention seemed really drawn to the first 11 verses of what took place with Ananias and Sapphira. And I don't ever want to get to the place where I get so familiar with a section of scripture that it doesn't have impact on my heart and my life anymore. Familiarity can breed discontent, can it? And contempt. Where we go, oh, I've heard that. And you see that in married couples that take each other for granted. And over time, they're like, oh, yeah, that's my spouse over there. Yeah. Aren't they wonderful? I love you. Uh, You know. And we don't want to get that place where God's word, like, oh, Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) God made a statement about sin, didn't he? And our response is to walk away with a healthy fear of God. We have the opportunity to come to the communion table. Remember Christ's broken body and his shed blood. And God is gracious and he's merciful as we confess our sin and forsake it. And maybe there's been a, a pattern of struggle in an area of our lives is never get tired of bringing it before the Lord again. God, here I am again. 
And Lord, I failed in this. And I'm not gonna hide it. I'm not gonna pretend that I'm more spiritual than I really am. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. An amazing thing that Jesus said and that he declared when he died upon the cross, he says, it is finished. It's paid in full. The price is paid for our forgiveness. But also, the power of sin is broken in our lives to come before him and allow him to do his work in our lives. I want to end with this verse as we head into communion. It's Psalms 139, and I'll I'll read it to you. We can make it our prayer tonight. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would open up our hearts, that you would expose our hearts and your love for us, that there would be a purification that takes place in your church tonight. And thank you that it's out of your love that you purify us. And would you teach us and would you help us to understand and really walk in the fear of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.